When you try to learn a book like Genesis, or I would say any book of the Bible, you need three things. Number one, the fancy word is a hermeneutic, and that just simply means, what's it saying? What's the face value of this? How do I figure out the face value? You gotta have a hermeneutic. Number two, you need to have a worldview. As believers, we bring the worldview of faith. Uh, critics of the Bible, they bring a worldview of naturalism, that nothing supernatural can happen. So that worldview will then taint how you then perceive the chapters that we're going to study in Genesis. And then thirdly, and this is often, often missed, is this book was written to people 3,500 years ago. And it had to mean something to them. So in order for you to ever figure out what it could mean for us, you have to first know what did it mean to the original audience? If you cannot figure that out, you'll never know what it's supposed to mean to us, okay? So I'll give you an example. Let's say Earth survives another 3,500 years. That's how old, he has so many laughs. <laughs> That's how old Genesis is. All right, America has gone the way of all empires. It doesn't exist anymore. Someone comes to America, they're excavating, and they find this piece of paper. It's an old newspaper from this year, from last year, I should say, 2016. And they see this picture right here. Show this picture. What do you think they will make of that? Wow, they trained donkeys and elephants to stand on their hind legs. That's really awesome. Wow, they had fights between donkeys and elephants back then. Huh, that's amazing. How'd they get a donkey to fight an elephant? You'd think he'd run away. He's not dumb. But what is it really? It's a battle between good and evil, right? <laughs> If you don't understand what 2016 believed about this, you'll never understand that picture. All right, you can take that down. So it's the same thing. If we try to reverse the clock 3,500 years, but we bring our own worldview from today, we'll make pictures like that say things they were never intended to say. So you have to be really careful. So when you look at the original audience for Genesis, Moses is writing this when he's in the wilderness and there are essentially two groups of people. There's the parents. The parents' perspective is we were mud brick making slaves in Egypt. That is their life. That's what their reference is. And so you have this group and you see it, especially in the book of Numbers, they're constantly saying, we should go back to being mud brick laying slaves. We don't belong out here. We should go back. So Genesis is speaking to that generation and it's telling them, no, you shouldn't. And then you have another generation of people, the kids. These are kids that are now born in the wilderness and God has told them this, you're to go into the promised land. You're to do what your mom and dad wouldn't do. Now, why wouldn't they go into the promised land? Giants, right? They're afraid of giants. 
So part of this book is convincing this next generation, go into the promised land. Don't worry about the giants. Don't do it. Don't do what your parents did. Believe me, trust me. So, so those are some big questions. And they would have these competing worldviews. So the worldview that they got from Egypt was this. There's a bunch of gods. And these gods, if you look at the creation narratives from, it's called the ancient Near East. So if, if you see A-N-E, it's ancient Near East. Often there'd be like a battle between the gods and one God would win and like tear apart the carcass of this other God and the blood would drip down and trees would sprout up and his intestines would fling out and there'd be islands and then his body would decompose and humans would pop out, right? There's all these kind of stories. That's how creation came. And the, the majority of the time, the gods created humans for what purpose? Slaves. We don't want to work Let's create a group of people that work and offer to us grain and food and gold so that we don't have to work. Amen. Amen. <laughs> so humanity was viewed as slaves for the gods. So, so that would be this competing worldview that's in their mind the whole time. And instead, Genesis is God saying, you've corrupted what is true. And instead you see this orderness. God takes chaos and he creates order. And he does it through his word, not through war. There's no war in this chapter. It's God speaks and it becomes. So the message to these two groups is God has this power and he has this plan and he's making preparations in the land. And then you get in Genesis 3, how God deals with his people when they make mistakes. It's not destroying them, it's grace. And that God desires to be with his people. That's the, the, when he prepares the land of Eden, it's so that Adam and Eve would flourish and so that God could be with them. So it's brilliant then. But you gotta understand the perspective from 3,500 years ago. As a slave, a previous slave, or the kid of a slave wandering in the wilderness. So when you read the Pentateuch especially, put on that lens. How would I feel about this? If my dad and mom were slaves in Egypt, or if I was a slave in Egypt, and I was the descendants of them wandering in the wilderness, what would this say to me? You have to get that before you ever try to figure out, well, what does that mean for us today? So those are the three things you gotta have. The, the face value, a hermeneutic, a worldview, we say it's faith, God can do supernatural things. And then thirdly, you gotta get what it meant to the original people, okay? So Genesis is a simple book. There's only two parts to it. Chapters one through 11, it's called primordial history, general history, whatever you want to call it. I call it the need. In Genesis one through 11, God lays out the need. And there are four major events in those chapters. There's creation, there's fall, there's flood, and there's Babel. Babel does something and God switches. In chapter 12 through 50, you see the switch. And that's called uh, special history, I call it the seed. Because right there you get, hey, Abraham, you're gonna be called the what of many nations? The father. And in you, in your seed, all nations will be blessed. There's a solution. The need, humanity is broken. And here's a solution. It's the Abrahamic covenant, which I believe governs the rest of the Bible. The Mosaic covenant is actually an intermediate until God brings about the fullness of the Abrahamic covenant. Read 
Galatians chapter three, if you have questions on that. So that's the whole book. It's, it's brilliant, okay? And in the second section, 12 through 50, it's really about the story of four very important men, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And each one of these men, it's as if God is painting a picture of himself. How God deals with these four men, it displays something about God's nature. So it's as if God is giving to these wandering, you know, ex-slaves or children of slaves. It's as if God is saying, through these four men, watch how I deal with them and you'll begin to see my nature. How I am so different than the gods of Egypt. How I am the one true God. So it's God laying that out through these four men, painting a picture of what he is like so that they will know, don't go back to Egypt and don't refuse to go into the land. Trust me, look at how I deal with them. Now, when we look at Genesis 1-1, kind of bringing that information in now, we have this battle in Genesis 1-1 and it's a worldview battle, isn't it? It's a faith battle. And very often what I hear as I talk to people is we are bringing in answers to this faith battle that are old and they don't apply anymore. Like if you've noticed, information is multiplying, is it not? Like it's unbelievable, the speed. So answers that 10 or even 15, 20 years ago that used to be really lock solid for faith, now there is this group of militant atheists, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, um, Christopher Hitchens before he passed away, that have attacked and eroded a lot of these answers. But the good news is there's, there's another group of really good people, Ravi Zacharias and John Lennox, and these incredible believers that are saying, well, here are new answers. So if you're really gonna do good apologetics, you have to be continually reading the newest answers to the objections of faith. So I'll give you one that I think I heard 10 years ago that's no longer valid. So there's this idea that, hey, earth could not be that old because the sun burns 3 million units of mass every second. So if you added all that mass back to the sun, it would be massively huge and earth would be sizzled. Who's heard that argument before? Okay. There's some major problems with that one. I'll give you one. It's called gravity. Gravity in the sun actually compresses the mass. You can have suns that are so compressed that they become black holes, right? It's where the mass becomes almost infinite, where it's, it's the sun has collapsed on itself and it's hyper dense. And then when a sun begins to run out of fuel, what actually happens to it? It gets massive. It expands. Why? Because it's really a gas still. It's not a solid object. So gravity greatly affects that. So you could add all the mass you want back to the sun and that will not make it bigger. It'll just make it more dense. So those kind of arguments, you got to be real careful. You have to keep on it if you want to uh, know and speak apologetic languages. So here, here's my goal. You've probably heard this before. I want to lay out for you the four major ways that people interpret Genesis chapter one. And I want you to think about these and I'm gonna ask you a question about them at the end. Now, there are lots of little minor ones. These are the four big major ones that most people will say, this is what Genesis one is about. View number one, 
It's called Young Earth Creationism. Who's heard of that one? That is a very common one. And it says this, Earth, less than 10,000 years old. The six days in chapter one are six 24-hour sequential periods, meaning day one is followed by day two, is followed by day three. There is no gap between them. It's a literal week, six 24-hour periods. God could have created a mature universe, meaning this, that the light from a star that's five billion light years away, God could have created that light extending from that star to us in that moment. Just as he created a mature atom, he created mature fruit trees that they're eating from right away, God could have done all that. So he does it in a literal six-day period. Now, Ken Ham answers in Genesis, big young earth creationist. Uh, the Institute for Creation Research in Southern California, the Morris family, big young earth creationists, right? So that's major view number one. I'm gonna assume most people in Southern Oregon are young earth creationists. That's the predominant view when I talk to people that are believers in Southern Oregon, young earth creationism. Number two, this one's called literal framework. Literal framework says this, they look at the pattern in the first three days and the second three days. And so on day one, God makes space. The corresponding day in day four, God fills that space with a sun and a moon. Day two, God creates the sea. Day four, the corresponding third day, God fills the sea. Day three, God makes the land. The corresponding day six, God makes land animals, God makes humanity. So literal framework says this, this is the bones by which God hangs what he's doing. He's forming and then he's filling. And it's not ontological. I'm gonna say that word a lot. Ontological means it's not about how God began things. This is simply telling you how he formed and how he filled. So it's, it's less apologetic, I guess, more functional. What is the function to these things? the function to earth, the function to the ocean, the function to land. The big proponent of this, if you want to read about it, a guy named John Walton, he's a professor at Wheaton. Smart guy, good arguments. Okay, that's number two. Number three is evolutionary creationism. Sounds like you can't combine those words, huh? <laughs> so here's what those people believe. They say that God used cosmological or biological evolution as a mechanism for all that we see right here. That God designed it in, if you would. My best illustration of this is a fractal. Does anyone know what a fractal is? I'm gonna have to show them sometime. A fractal is a very simple mathematic equation. So it'd be Z n plus one equals Z to the nth squared plus one. If you're a math person, you might be sitting there, that is not Simple. Okay, if you're a math person, extremely simple. But when you allow that equation to run its course, it comes up with what's known as the Mandelbrot set. You can Google that. Unbelievable complexity. And the complexity never ends. You, you, you zoom in on the Mandelbrot set and it becomes more complex, more complex, more complex, more complex. The deeper you go, the more complexity that you see. 
So what they say is this, God designed this elegant, simple way of getting all the incredible beauty and um, diversity from this real simple thing. So theirs would be um, the theory of everything, if you would, that God created this theory of everything that drives forward what we see now as his creation. And he does it through the mechanism of cosmological and biological evolution. People that believe this, C.S. Lewis, if you've read his Mere Christianity, he hints at that. His other books hint at it. Uh, big time name. Tim Keller, personally one of my favorite authors. Uh, Francis Collins, if that name does not ring a bell, he is the guy that completed the Human Genome Project for the United States. He mapped the human genome in the late 90s. Uh, he wrote a book called The Language of God. Phenomenal book, great read. So he is that guy. Um, the last one, Stephen Meyer, I put him in this category, but he's not exactly in this category. Uh, he wrote a book. If you are really interested in knowing the facts about these questions, it's the best book I've read. It's called The Signature of the Cell. Unbelievable. Thick, thick book. Unbelievable book. One of the best books I've ever read on it. Uh, Stephen Meyer, while he has some kind of mm, evolution in him, He's an intelligent design guy. So he said, and he's actually, he was actually called, if you're older, in 2005, there was a big debate in Dover, Delaware over the science textbook. Do you remember that? Okay, they outlawed a textbook because it had intelligent design in it. And so a group of atheists sued the, city, the, the, the school district and said, you can't teach that, that's religion. Well, Stephen Meyer was the guy that they called in to refute no, it's science. He's that powerful of a guy. And so uh, four years after that, 2009, he writes Signature uh, in the Cell. It's unbelievable. And so he goes against what he calls uh, methodical naturalism. Methodical naturalism is, hey, this thing happened, this little mutation happened, this little mutation happened, added, 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 and finally you get a wing and a bird that flies away. So he, he, he I, I don't know anyone that refutes that idea better than Stephen Meyer. It's just he makes it seem like nonsense. So he's the guy, he is incredible. So he's intelligent design that God has been involved in this thing and that common descent, does anyone know what common descent is? When you hear common descent, that's meaning that uh, the goo went to the zoo and became you, okay? So common descent is that they're looking for the map back to bacteria from us. And he shows common descent is no way. There's no way there is common descent. I mean, he, it's a brilliant, brilliant book, all right? Now, I love these guys. Lewis, Keller, Collins, Meyer, love them. But I struggle with evolution on a couple of, couple of ideas for me. Um, you have the kind thing in here that they reproduce after they're kind. Their answer to that is the message to the original audience was this. You are in the image of God, reproduce after the image of God. That's the actual message. Now, I agree with that, but I still don't say, well, I think kind matters. So when I think of kind, I think there was one cat at some time, and that one cat became the lion, became the tiger, became my little kitty cat, became the mountain lion that watched you, watched you as you hiked through 
Cathedral Hills last night. It's all that came from one common ancestor. The horse became the little cute pony as well as the Clydesdale. That that is within the kind, that there's, if you would microevolution, no problem. That within the genome, there's ability to, to adapt and to change and to grow and all that stuff, no problem. But signature of the cell would say, mm, there's this problem and it's called irreducible complexity. And what that means is this, you need all the parts for that thing to function. And until you have all the parts, it's actually a disadvantage to have half the parts. You know what I'm saying? I'll give you an illustration from my house. I don't know what it was, four, four years ago, we had a plague of frogs. We had more frogs in our yard than I've ever seen before, like frogs everywhere. Some of my nephews from Santa Barbara came up and they were actually visiting with us, staying with us. And they were catching these frogs that had a fifth leg. Have you seen a fifth leg frog? So it had, you know, two front legs and then three back legs. And they're like, dude, look at this. So I'm like, that's weird. So I Googled it. Turns out it's bacteria that causes something and a fifth leg grows out. And so I'm like, boys, it's bacteria and you can catch it. <laughs> You're gonna have mutations. They're like, awesome. And they're like smearing the frog on them. Like, yeah. <laughs> Here's the problem with those five-legged frogs. Now let's say a thousand generations or 10,000 generations, that funky fifth leg becomes a wing and it can fly. But with that fifth leg, they couldn't hardly move. They could barely hop, right? All they were, they were gonna become lunch for a very happy Frenchman. That's what was gonna happen to them. An extra leg, awesome. It was a disadvantage. It'd be a disadvantage for thousands and thousands of generations until it could become an advantage. That's irreducible complexity. That's the signature of the cell, that same idea, like look, that, this just does not work. You gotta be careful of that. And then Paul Davies, a great physicist, writes about the origin of life and you require what's called a polypeptide. It'd be like if you're building a house and it's a brick house, you need the bricks first. If you don't have the bricks, you're not making a house. So you gotta make some bricks first. And that's a polypeptide. It's not life, but it's absolutely required for life. Well, polypeptides, there's two kinds. There's an L and a D. And the only ones that produce life are like the L ones. So when you put a polypeptide together, you gotta make sure and keep all the D ones out. So Paul Davies, a physicist, calculated what would be required just to make the brick that might then lead to life. And he said, you would need a primordial soup the size of the universe to ever get a polypeptide that becomes then a brick that might make possible life. So those kind of things, I just said, hmm, I don't think so, right? So that's the third one. The fourth one, closest to my camp, it's called historical creationism. It's called historical creationism because really th th this has been a debated chapter way before evolution, before 1860, before Darwin. It's been, you go back to Augustine. It's always been what is trying to be said in this chapter and in chapter two. So historic creationism says, we're trying to gather what has really the thought been about these chapters over the long haul of earth or of the Bible before we got in this really microcosm of, oh, we got to fight evolution. So historic creationism says this, Genesis one and two is the narrative of how God creates humanity. He creates them for a partnership, 
I'm gonna partner in some things. That's why you'll see the mandate to humans. He creates in these chapters a place called Eden where man can dwell in a super good environment. And historic creationism says this, mankind is recent. So we're not billions of years old, mankind is recent. Uh, Charity and I, when we went to Israel, we visited the oldest city in the world, it's Jericho. It makes you feel really young there. Like this thing is 10,000 years old. That's the oldest city we have, eight to 10,000 years old. So mankind, recent. Uh, The earth, historic creationism says, I don't know. I say, I don't know. I don't really care. And we'll look a lot more next week at this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I don't know. I think earth was created right then. How old is it? I don't know. So you found a really old rock. Great, good for you. I don't think that matters. I don't think the Bible's trying to tell us, answer those kind of questions. I think Genesis 1 is like this. It's like Jeopardy. If you watch Jeopardy, when a contestant makes a reply, what does he have to do? Answer it as a question, right? What is? That's what Genesis does. It gives you the answers. Or yeah, it gives you all the answers. You got to figure out what's the right question to be asking of it. And too often we ask the wrong questions. So it's, it's almost like Jeopardy. So historic creationism says, listen, mankind is recent. We don't know the age of the earth. The days here are literal 24-hour periods that God creates this, shapes this beautiful place called Eden where he puts Adam and he puts Eve in a place where he can dwell with them, right? The big guy on this one, his name is John Salehammer. Um, He was a professor at at Western where I went. Uh, I really have appreciated his book. It's called Genesis Unbound. Quick read. It gives you the primer of historic creationism. Brilliant, brilliant book. So here's my question for you. Which one of these four can you believe in and be saved? Can you believe in young earth creationism and be saved? Yeah, I think so. Can you believe in literal framework and be saved? Yeah. Can you believe in evolutionary creationism and be saved? Silence. (laughs) Is C.S. Lewis saved? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) Can you believe in historic creationism and be saved? Am I saved? (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. These things don't save you. They matter, no doubt, 100%. They matter. I am convinced you can believe in any one of these four ways of interpreting Genesis chapter one with a worldview of faith, and you can be saved. I'm convinced of that. So with that in mind, I rarely fight people. I'll, you know, I'll duke it out for historic creationism, no problem. I'll tell you what I believe. I'll tell you why. I'll give you all my answers, no, no problem. But if you say, nah, I'm a young earth creationist, perfect, praise God, be that, do that, no problem. No problem at all. And here's why I think this is important. So we have, here's what we've kind of done now, 21st century. We have pitted Christianity against what? Evolution. So we've made this battle now between Christianity and between evolution. And I see this, when you look at worldviews, about how things came to be, 
There are three major worldviews and that's it. Creationism, God did it. He stands over it. Number two, pantheism, which is what? God is creation. And then naturalism, there is no God. Those are across the board. You can pretty much put any person's worldview in either creationism, pantheism, or naturalism. God did it. God is it. And there is no God. So when I look at, okay, how do I want to present the Bible? I say in the United States, maybe if I was in India, it'd be different because pantheism is big there. But in the United States, I say, it's not evolution, it's naturalism. So if I'm going to start debating somebody apologetically, and I'm trying to convince them of the truth of Genesis chapter one, what I'm gonna really argue against is I'm gonna argue against naturalism. That's where the battle is. It's in the beginning, God created. That's what I'm gonna say, okay, all right. I'm a historic creationist. Okay, no problem. You, you, you know, I have my problems with evolution and, and I might even give them to you. But ultimately, here's my question. Did God create? That is the major one. And if you look at, I'll give you one hint at where we're going probably more in this chapter. If you just look at verse one, it says this, in the beginning, God created. The word beginning there is the Hebrew word, reshit. Now we think, okay, it means a spot in time. And we get that from, there's two ways to interpret the Bible. You can go to culture or you can go to God's revelation, the other books of the Bible, how it used it. So if you look at ancient Near East stuff, culture at this time, they would say point in time. But when I read the Bible, this word shows up over and over and over again. And it's never about a point in time. It's about a period of time, sometimes years and years and years. So it's used again in Genesis 10, 10, where she does. And it's for Nimrod's rule. And it says, in the beginning of Nimrod's rule, he built all these cities. Well, how long did it take him to build all those cities? Decades and decades and decades. But it still uses the same word, Rashid. It's used again in Job 8, 7. And it's used of the entire span of Job's life before he's stricken in chapter one. How old was Job? In chapter one, well, he had about 10 kids at that point. So I'm, I'm gonna say he's a little bit older. No grandkids yet, it doesn't say, but he had 10 kids. So the entire beginning of his life is called Rashid. It's used in Jeremiah 28 for the first four years of Zedekiah's rule. So when you look at just the word beginning, we come with 21st century ideas of, okay, it was a spot in time. And the Bible says, no, it was a period of time. How long is that period of time? I don't know. The Bible doesn't seem to care to tell us. It's just in the Rashid, in, in this time, God created everything. Okay, 10,000 years, 100,000 years, billion years, I don't know. It just says in this period of time, this is what God did. So it's very important to really figure out what is this text actually saying. And what, the, what is echoed throughout the Bible is not in the beginning. What is echoed throughout the Bible is God created. That is the important message. What God wanted those ex-slaves and the children of slaves to know is those gods in Egypt didn't do anything. I created everything. 
It's me. Now trust me with my creation. What God wants us, I believe, to get today is that same exact message. Trust me. I own this place. I created it. So we have this idea that it's only 6,000 years or 4,000 years in the Old Testament, and we get that from a guy named uh, Usher in the 17th century. But we know already he was wrong because the genealogies that he used, we know they skip. Compare Matthew chapter one to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter three and look at the names. They're, They're skipping. Here's why. If you were writing a scroll 3,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago, you were limited by space. So what would you do to conserve space? Well, in genealogy and stuff like that, what you would do is you would choose the important players, and that was it. You wouldn't do all the people, you didn't choose the important players. And in Hebrew, what's really fascinating is they do not have a word for grandson. It's only descendant. This person was the descendant of that person. Now, how many generations are in between there? Sometimes one, sometimes many. So be like this. If, if, if someone's writing on a scroll about me and I was the descendant of George Washington and I become president, it would be like George Washington was president and he had a descendant, Matt Heverly, who was also president. How many generations are in there? 10? I don't know. So we know already That's not how they wrote. They had to conserve space. They were limited by these scroll lengths. And so they would pick the top people always in them. So we already know that 6,000 years is wrong. So I very quickly try to move out of all of this stuff and I move to what I call the ontological arguments of faith. The very beginning arguments. The strongest things that we have are literally in verse one. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. I'll give you a couple examples. Stars. Anyone take an astronomy class? How do stars form? Gas, totally. They have the big bang, boom. They have these massive clouds of gas. I mean, billions of light years across. And then Slowly, they begin to, gravity acts on them. They coalesce, they compress, they compress, they compress more and more and more. And as they compress, they light the primordial nuclear fission fires that now we call stars, right? That's the common way that people say stars are made. What's the problem with that? It's a gas. What happens to a gas when you compress it? Ever use like an air compressor? and you fill the compressor, what happens to it? It gets hot. What happens when you heat up a gas? What does it do? It expands. So if you actually applied science to what they're saying, what would happen is those giant clouds, they would compress, heat up, and expand. And they would compress, heat up, and expand. And they would do that forever. They would never compress down to the point of lighting the primordial fires. That's not what a gas does. So if you really press somebody that knows, they'll be like, yeah, that's just kind of what we think, but we're not sure exactly the mechanisms that did that. Well, that's interesting because Job says that God created the stars and he named them all. So either way, you're gonna have to give faith. You're gonna have to totally defy reason with compression of gas, or you're gonna say, maybe, maybe God actually did it. I think the fact that there is something instead of nothing speaks of God. We have something 
And so if you go back to yesterday, you still had something. If you go back to the day before that, you had something, right? And even science says that all the way back to the Big Bang. And they're constantly trying to get closer and closer and closer to that first, whatever, millisecond, when the earth was the size of whatever, Pluto, there's, yeah, it's as close as possible. I don't care about that. I say, what happened five minutes before the Big Bang? Tell me that. Because you have to have one of two things. You either had to have matter, which the Big Bang says you didn't have, or you had to have a mind. It's one or the other. Take your pick. You had mind or you had a matter. And the Big Bang theory says you didn't have any matter, so you had to have a mind. You had to have a controlling God that was there at the beginning. There's another one that they're just finding. So in the 90s and in the last 10 years or so, they've been noticing that our universe is expanding. They've kind of known that with the redshift and other stuff, but here's what they're really fascinated by. Our universe is not just expanding, it's accelerating. So it's getting bigger at a faster rate. So we're able to now kind of watch it. Oh, wow, it's getting, it's, it's, it's as if something is actually pushing the universe apart. Well, what is it? So if you hear these terms like dark energy or dark matter, guess what those are saying? We don't have a clue, but we're going to say it's dark energy and dark matter that's forcing the universe apart faster and faster and faster because something of tremendous power is pushing the universe apart because you don't just move 50 billion light year across galaxies at massive speeds, accelerating them without having a fantastic amount of power. So they're seeing right now, 90% of the universe is dark matter. So we only see 10% of it because we need so much force and so much energy and so much gravity to force this thing apart. We got to have a ton of it. So it's like 90%. Really? Wow, that's fascinating to me. So you got these like ontological, incredible problems to me. Um, even in evolution, bacteria are the most survival of the fittest creatures on planet earth. They can live in the hottest environment, the driest environment, the wettest environment, the most acidic environment. They can live in oil. They can live in anything, you name it. So what what would force a single cell bacteria that can survive anything, what would ever, what would ever cause it to become multi-celled? There is no reason at all. It will out-survive any multi-celled organism. So if the mechanism that provides us evolution is survival of the fittest, which is what they say, then we should all just be bacteria and that's it. Because it is the most survival of the fittest organism on planet Earth. So these like really fundamental problems. So I'll say this again. When I deal with apologetics and talk to unbelievers, I am very quick to just say, time, I'm not going to argue that. Take as long as you want because I think it's there. I don't know how much it was. I don't really care. Um, Evolution, okay. I'll give you my disagreements. I'll give you, why do we have multi-celled organisms? Um, What about irreducible complexity? Uh, What about these kind of problems? And and then pretty quickly I'll be, okay, And I'm going to get to the core issue. Did God create? Tell me how this thing began. Tell me how a star was formed. Tell me these answers. Tell me why the universe is screaming apart. If it was the Big Bang, things should go apart. And as they get further and further apart, gravity begins to act on them and slows them down. 
So what is causing them to move faster and faster and faster? And by the way, the Big Bang is a very recent phenomenon. Do you know that? It's like 40 years old. Prior to that, everyone said, everyone knew the Bible was wrong and it's steady state. Until we got um, the red shift of stars separating the world. And then we got this background radiation in the 1960s from a Bell laboratory where they thought it was pigeon dung on their antenna, but they couldn't seem to get rid of it. Turns out that, yeah, that's awesome. Turns out that that's the calling card for a big bang. And that's when it began to change things. So powerful was steady state that Einstein added in what's called this famous fudge factor because his theory of relativity predicted a beginning Instead, he said it was so ingrained in science, he's like, well, okay, I better add in a fudge factor. Well, it's been removed now because it's a beginning just like Genesis 1.1. So I am very quick to say, okay, 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 because my ultimate goal is this. I want to get to Jesus. I want to get out of Genesis 1 and get to Genesis 3. Man, don't you know there's problems? You ever read the newspaper and say, what went wrong? You ever wonder about your own heart, what went wrong? I'm gonna get to Jesus as quick as possible. There is the serpent crusher. There is the one. There is the one that will save you. My account of how Genesis 1 took place or your account of how Genesis 1 took place will not save you. Do you know that? There is one name under heaven and earth by which men must be saved. It's Jesus. It's not the creation account that saved me, saves me. It is the creator that saves me. So as quickly as possible, I feel as a believer in 2017, I want to diffuse as many of these things as possible and then get to the deep end, which is always Jesus Christ. So, hey, no problem. Okay, no problem. I'll lob some little, you know, bombs into them to get them thinking. But as quickly as possible, I'm going to frame it naturalism versus creationism. And then let's talk about Jesus. All right? So I think that's what's being said here. It's historic creationism. How old is the earth? Could be as old as you want it. Then God takes, shapes this great place because he loves his people and wants to dwell with his people. So he shapes it and says, come, dwell with me, walk with me. We detonate that. And then Jesus comes and repairs the damage. And one day he will shape another place for us called the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell with him for eternity. So to me, that's Genesis, launching this incredible story. Make sense? Yep. So Jesus, we thank you for Genesis 1. I thank you for the simple, elegant way that you inspired Moses to pen this account. The details that give us absolute clarity on what matters the focus that you have upon humanity, your love, your tenderness, your care for them, your noticing of Adam being alone, your provision of Eve. Lord, we see this incredible, beautiful picture of you emerge. And so I ask, Lord, that we as a congregation would be able to see you through these these verses see your beauty and your majesty, your creativity, your brilliance, your care for humans. What is man that you are mindful of us? 
How may we say the same thing? Why do you care about us? Why are you such a good, generous, heavenly father? Why do you rush to us even like Adam and Eve after they sinned? Why do you do that? Why do you make promises to us even when we've broken our own promises? May we see you, Lord God. May we see you high and lifted up in the book of Genesis. May we go from here more confident in you and in your power because of the book of Genesis. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Next week, we'll really dive in. God bless you guys.